Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest Emmett Penny. Emmett is a decouple veteran. You can check out his previous episodes, number 19, The Nuclear New Deal, which remains one of our top 10 most downloaded, as well as episode 45, Can the Left and Right Come Together to Decouple, which uh, he was a co-guest with uh, our beloved Australian brother, James Flier. Um, Emmett's been pretty busy since our last conversation, which lamentably was far too long ago, um, working on his excellent exhaust podcast, which you should all check out and subscribe to. And most recently, uh, his new endeavor, Nuclear Barbarians, um, which we're here to discuss today. And Emmett will give you lots of uh, information about how to follow you know, how to get on the Substack, where to find the podcast, et cetera. Emmett, it's been uh, way too long. Um, you're honestly one of my favorite thinkers in this oh, movement. Um, you. you know, and you got great stories, man. Like I think I've, I've said before, um, you, you, I'm not sure if you already are a speechwriter, but, but you have a way with words and stories. I remember <laughs> we were, we were struggling over, um, FDR's commandeering of Al Capone's car. And we were both like, who was it again? Anyway, some golden one, one moments. thing every, everybody got upset about that. And then, uh, my friend, uh, Josh was like, it did make me pay attention very closely to everything you guys were saying because I kept screaming Al Capone. Um, <laughs> so love it. Love it. Anyway. So yeah, definitely, uh, listeners, if you haven't, um, already check out the archives for everything Emmett Penny's been on, on this podcast, Emmett, welcome back. It's, it's really a pleasure having you, man. Yeah. Happy to be here, man. Let's uh, let's dive in. My uh, one of my best friends. Um, he has a great sort of catchphrase. He says, "Hey man, what's stealing your time?" So so mm-hmm. give us a sense of that right now. Oh God. Um, well, a lot of it's been the projects I've been working on. Getting nuclear barbarians off the ground was uh, more challenging than getting exhaust off the ground, right? Because um, exhaust, I like had no idea what I was doing and. I didn't know if it was going to work and it didn't have like this advocacy edge to it. So the stakes felt pretty low. Um, and nuclear barbarians, because I also wanted to create a business in case I wanted to sell some merch or something later, or do some other type of work, maybe consulting. I had to like f- get the business registered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I also had to figure out like what it was going to be and what I wanted to say about it. It was like I had this image in my head. I had this very weird vision that's still sort of coming together, but I managed to pull it out. And like the last second, I wanted to launch in early October. And uh, here we are. So nice. I mean, like in in a nutshell, what is it? Like I've seen uh, your aesthetic on Twitter. You got a lot of Conan the Barbarian memes going on, some some Dukem Nukem stuff. Uh, Is this the like ultimate nuke bro uh, place to be or or what's, is there more subtlety to it? What's, give me an idea of what what it is. I mean, I think there'll be more subtlety to it. Yeah. I I knew, I knew. Yeah. yeah, So the elevator pitch um, of this is that nuclear advocacy, I think, is captured by an environmental movement that hates it. I want to advocate for nuclear for reasons beyond environmentalism to an audience that might not be interested in energy, nuclear, environmentalism at all. Um, But I think they should be, and I think they could be. And part of that is bringing together basically aesthetics that I love, like stuff from John Milius films, like Conan the Barbarian, things like, you know, obviously you're looking at a green screen, but I'll have Dylan put in my background done by the comic book artist, Sterling Bartlett, a friend of mine. And I wanted somebody to combine Iron Maiden's Power Slave album cover with uh, sort of the color template and theme of the Palo Verde plant in Arizona. Um, And I was like, to me, nuclear is like this uh, super cool, super Promethean, like really beefy uh, thing that is totally maligned by the cathedral, right? Sort of the academic institutions, the NGOs, even the government institutions that oversee it. And I thought, well, we need to be barbarians to defend nuclear from civilization, and storm the palace in some way. And storm or? the palace. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, it needs to be insurgent. And I'm figuring out how to do that. 
but that's one of the exciting things about it. I was like, I know what I want. I'm not sure how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to go for it anyway and see what shakes out because I think that that's when the interesting stuff has really happened in my life and I've been surprised by what's happened because one of the things that I learned at Exhaust was that it was – you could peel people into – like ener- caring about energy and energy politics and all of that, who had never even considered it before. Right. right? Um, like we successfully nuke pilled like tons of our listenership, probably all, you know? Um, and I was like, that's, and we have an eclectic listenership there. We have everybody from like free market libertarians to basically like really like authentically right wing people, you know um, we have communists that listen to our show you know, so it told me that there was, um, and I mean, I've had guests on from all of those groups, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, as well as some other ones. And it told me that there was a consensus possible here. But one of the things that I also had to engage with is that there are a lot of like nuclear, pro nuclear aesthetics out there. Um, you know, like I couldn't be Isabel Bemecki. Like for all, I mean, look at me. I look like no a bodysuit. No, yeah, no, no digital, no digital disco bodysuit for Emma. Yeah, I would describe my physique as cake and steak. Like I, you know, uh, I couldn't do that for all sorts of reasons, and I shouldn't, right? Um, yeah, because yeah. she's already doing it, and God bless her right. for it. Um, I couldn't do decouple. That's what you're doing. I can't be uh, Michael Schellenberger. I can't be breakthrough. I can't be all of these other things. I was like, what's missing? And I was like, well, like, how do I be, you know, how do I be like the black flag of nuclear energy advocacy? How do I bring like what I value and how I think about things into it rather than trying to shoehorn myself into a safer aesthetic? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is really, really important because, uh, I think, you know, Izzy and I have joked about this. There's kind of more drama within the nuclear advocacy community than there is within the fashion industry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was, I think, a bit of a shocking revelation for her as she kind of jumped into uh, science communication, especially in nuclear. And there's just such a environment of of kind of language policing. Um, like I remember when Maddie uh, started the uh, Green uh, Nuclear Deal, she was catching a lot of shit from uh, folks at the Green Energy Collective, for instance, just kind of sniping at her a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, yeah. I, I don't want to get into gossiping and stuff here, but like, there's a lot of like, no, you need to be this way. You need to take on this aesthetic, you know, don't be a bro, et cetera. And it's just, it's, it's this attempt to sort of like confine us into all talking to the same audience um, or, or doing what's kind of like safe for nuclear advocacy or like, don't make me look bad because I'm, I'm trying to preach to the democratic socialists of America or get on well with the sunrise movement, you know, so you're embarrassing me kind of thing. And it's like, fuck it. No, like we need to expand our Overton window. We need to, we need to talk to a lot of different audiences. Yeah. So that's, that's been a real kind of revelation and, you know, why I'm excited to have you on and see what you're doing, uh, develop because, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be a, a big rainbow coalition and, and we need the, we need the, uh, <laughs> Yeah, like I don't the barbarians like, on one side. Look, if we're trying to build nuclear, I'm willing to work with pretty much anybody, you know? Like, um, and I hope they're willing to work with me and that they have serious commitments about having this broad coalition. Um, you know, I'd like to be able to take them at their word at that. I'm willing to take them at their word. They have an audience I can't get. That's mm-hmm. great. Awesome. Yeah. We need that. Totally. You know, like I just think it's really funny to reply to um the NRDC with a meme of Duke Nukem saying hail to the King baby, uh, with a nuclear waist belt buckle. And you're basically staring up at his crotch. I think that Mm -hmm. rules. I want more of that because there's no reason to respect those people. Mm -hmm. There's no reason Mm -hmm. to try to argue on their terms to me. And basically I think we need some like dark horses out there getting scrappy with them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think we're going to get into this a bit later, but, um, you know, within the anti-genetic engineering, the anti-vax, the anti-nuclear communities, there's there's sort of sort of celebrity scientists, celebrity figures, you know, folks like Helen Caldicott, 
Vandana, Shiva, et cetera, right? Folks with very shaky credentials who suit the biases of, you know, the the movements that they are become the celebrity stars of, you know, they get flown around the world first class to, you know, speak at you know, endless conferences and get endless honorary doctorates from uh, from institutions. Anyway, those people, um, you know, really need a reckoning. And in, in the past, I've, I've said that, you know, I, I truly will say that Helen Caldicott has blood on her hands for the kind of fear mongering she did post Fukushima. And, you know, mm-hmm. we know that the danger from nuclear accidents is the panicked evacuations and the psychological distress. You know, I have uh, patients contacting me, you know, extremely worried that they've had to have a few CT scans because of a cancer workup or something, and they're terrified they're going to get a different cancer on top of it. Like that, that has a real burden. Um, and and ac- across the board, I mean, in terms of the overregulation of genetic engineering and the implications for, you know, golden rice, children losing their sight. I mean, these people really do have a lot of suffering on their hands. And so I'm, I'm glad to see them um, getting called out for it and that there'll be another voice doing that. Um, I wanted to pivot back though a little bit to, um, you know, who we're addressing, who we're talking to, because I think I, um, maybe fell within a, a similar spell early on. Um, you know, as I was exploring nuclear, um, I was on sort of the green party of Canada, you know, Facebook forum, getting into a lot of, uh, arguments, trying to win people over. Um, you know, it was a useful exercise in terms of being forced to address all of the concerns around nuclear, right? Um, Great way to, to do sharpen a lot of your research. Blade. Exactly. Exactly. A whetstone. Um, but you know, ultimately you get to a point where it's, it's no longer fruitful. And, and I was just realizing that these environmental groups and activists are a tiny percentage of the population. You know, they're one to 2% of, of the, the demos here. They control, a, you know, a large amount of resources and they have a long organizing experience. So they're able to amplify that voice. Um, but there's a need for us to do that on the other side of the Overton spectrum. And I, I'm excited to see that happening. Um, so, you know, who, who is your audience? Who are you trying to appeal to? Is there a demographic? Um, let's explore that a little bit more. Yeah, generally, I mean, it's for anybody who likes it, obviously. Um, but I understand that my aesthetic is really going to appeal to frustrated young men who feels like, feel like there's no future and who are Mm -hmm. distrustful of the establishment, um, and the society they've created. Is there like a left right thing? Are you trying to sort of be no. pan political? What's your No, yeah. I mean obviously I have like nationalist commitment. I'm basically okay, so here's the thing. I am probably just a New Deal Democrat, but that's yeah. basically like saying that you're a right wing nationalist at this point on the left. <laughs> right, right. Right. So that's probably my politics. That's fine to me. Uh, other people might not like it. Other people can be wrong. That's allowed. But I think that because that's basically my politics, um, it affords me the opportunity to talk to both sides of the political spectrum. And I think especially after like COVID uh, and stuff like that, uh, there's big, a big reshuffling of what these ideological commitments really are, mm-hmm. you know, and what they really mean. You know, like what does right left mean when both parties in America – we're interested in crushing the labor movement, making our country weak by offshoring everything, hollowing out our manufacturing base, over-financializing everything, and creating a parasitic middle management class on every asset you can possibly think of, including college degrees. Right. You know, like what like what does that mean at that point, right? So like I'm I'm t- I'm talking to all comers, but specifically guys like that, you know. Okay, Emmett, so I got to follow up on on this uh, self-description of uh, being a nationalist. I feel like that's a pretty kind of dirty word, um, mm-hmm. a dangerous way to identify yourself, um, potentially. Um, help us understand what what you mean by that, because I think you're someone who's you know welcoming of immigrants, who's tolerant and progressive in those regards. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, I just can you unpack that a little bit more? I mean, look, man, development projects are national. Uh, so is electricity. That's what we're talking about here. We want these big things that has to be done through the nation state. And I'm not like anti-immigrant or something like that. I mean, I think I have a pretty typical restrictionist view of that because a tight labor market is good. And if there is no premium on being an American citizen, then you're no longer running a country. You're running an economic zone. And treating everything in this country like it's just an economic zone is part of the problem. As we've seen with RTOs and how the grid gets run, not everything is like that. All right. <laughs> cool. Let's <laughs> like if, if somebody's going to say like is that like racist or I have no racial animus within me. That's not what it's about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, if you can't have any civic national dignity, then what do you have? Partisan dignity. Well, what are you going to get mm-hmm. done with just that, right? 
and the other thing is like, I just like really don't understand that talking point anymore where it's just like, well, why wouldn't you just have like open borders or whatever? Like who does that benefit? Right. The elites who get to flush human capital in and out of the market whenever they want. Right. Like, and it creates huge brain drain in the developing world. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you want to take a look at some extremely exploitative contracts, you can look at what H1B visas are like in the US and how that whole dirty economy works and how it also screws over American tech workers because you can always get cheap, basically, slave labor imported in from some other country to start working in that industry who are totally captured by insane contracts and have no way to advocate for themselves. Right. Like people like saying, oh, I just want all of that stuff because ultimately it makes them feel good and their friends will tell them that they're a good person just like them. That's what it's about. There's no like coherent policy thinking there. Okay, let's uh, let's let's shift gears slightly. Um, You know, I think a lot of what you're you're talking about is probably playing within um, some of the the uh, the waters that uh, Michael Schellenberger and Ted Nordhaus ventured into with their essay, the the death of environmentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're you're saying that it's it's um, this is the time to no longer play nice. That this is. I mean, I don't want to put the words in your mouth, right? But I think I'm I'm also feeling this way that there is a complete moral and ethical bankruptcy um, you know to this to this group. Um, they do enjoy a, a, a decent level of, of uh, social capital, social trust um, for some reason. Um, but, but I would say that's the case, um, certainly amongst large swaths of you know the middle class, the upper mm-hmm. middle class. Um, and I think that's really got to be challenged because of the, you know, frankly, I mean, anti-environmental, even if you want to put it in that regard, policies of, for instance, shutting down nuclear plants and polluting the air with the fossil fuels that replace them, if we just want to be very narrow, but also, you know, if you want to take them on on issues of environmental justice, um, the closure of Indian Point leads to burning more fossil fuels in plants that are cited in asthma alley or in, you know, uh, racialized communities. It's just, it's becoming so clear now, the kind of hypocrisy that we're seeing. Um, I think a lot of pro-nuclear advocates kind of dance around that and don't want to offend um, environmentalist sensibilities. Um, it may be an unpopular thing to do um, at this current moment in time, but I think it's also really important to be morally consistent um, and, and um, you know, maybe lead the pack, do something that's unpopular for a while in order to to shift the uh, the politics. So, you um, have a, I think it's your first essay in your Substack, um, introducing mm-hmm. nuclear barbarians, and you kind of go a little bit into, um, you know, the origins of the environmental movement. Um, I'd be interested in sort of exploring your thinking on that. I guess kind of the incubation and, and birth history going back, you know, a few centuries um, to what this movement is. So we can kind of situate that, and then we'll we'll interrogate it a little bit more, um, you know, moving forward into its current manifestations. Yeah. So uh, Tim Snyder had a really interesting response to that, where he thought that some of the things that I attribute to sort of the Victorian era, he located in the earlier French physiocrats. He might be right about that. And I might have a too Anglo-centric view. So I just want to give credit to Tim for, if he listens to this, I have no idea. Um, But I know that he's sort of in our sphere on Twitter. Uh, I wanted to give him a nod because I don't think I had time to do that um, on the website. So The central premise of my argument is that environmentalism is really a type of stocking horse for elite motion sickness, Um, that with the progressive ideology came the nostalgia that elites feel. Like nostalgia isn't memory. It is this like weird story you tell yourself about how cute things were when we were all rustic or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be located in people like James Fenimore Cooper a famous American author of uh, books like The Last of the Mohicans. Um, I quote a critic who says that uh, Cooper never loved his Indians more than when he was watching them disappear. You know, Um, and there's just sort of this fetishization of childhood, um, of people who are basically looked at as children because they don't at that time get to participate in political life. So indigenous people, black Americans and women. 
right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's no surprise that even in incredible works of Victorian literature like Jane Eyre, there is the common for the time moment of a purely innocent, good-hearted child dying as a moral reproach of the society that surrounds them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, by the way, is this a response to, I mean, my, my sort of simplistic understanding of this period is, you know, you have uh, the industrial revolution, um, the dark satanic mills, you have little children working as, you know, coal sweeps and miners. I mean, it's totally, like, there's, there's some early, authentic things that people are responding to here, right? Like, yeah, it's like not, the early stages of, of industrialization are pretty uniformly, quite dirty like the pro like the benefits of industrialization sort of seem to come 50 to 100 years later as as you know yeah. rising material benefits percolate outwards and a middle class establishes itself and trade unions get established um you know wherever it's happening across the world but that initial stage is it's it can be oh, a bit of a hellscape it's rough but what's interesting in that is that there's also this sort of creation of childhood as this discrete realm of innocence to which people would like to return. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's sort of like what, um, the noble savage myth serves for these people as well. If only we could return to the childhood of the world that these people were living right. in as if they don't have their own political squabbles or aren't thoughtfully living out their lives in a meaningful way. Right. Um, I think that this, uh, endures um, for a while. I think it is a part of basically middle or upper upper middle class thinking. And I think that we can see resonance of of that in the 60s environmental movement, right? Mm -hmm. Which is basically started by elites in America who uh, don't want the Storm King electric pump to be built uh, in New York, right? Um, and these people aren't like left or right, I guess. I guess they're right to the extent that they're elite. I mean, there are plenty of different ways to think about that. If you check out that awesome essay by William Tucker that I hyperlinked to in the piece um, called uh, The Leisure Class and the Environmental Movement, one of the things that you find out is like one of the guys who is in the community stopping Storm King from being built because they didn't want to look at power lines, despite the fact that everyone in their town and county and state wanted it to be built. Um, One of those dudes is like a West Point general, right? So we're not talking about like hippies, though eventually hippies show up and are a part of that whole thing, right? I mean, just go to Woodstock, New York, you know? Um, And a lot of this comes from like Malthusian fears that also come out of industrialization, Right. What are you going to do with quote unquote excess human life when you don't have the resources, blah, blah, blah. Um, But ultimately, it is a genteel nostalgic vision of rustic life before industrialism um, that has little to do with reality. And that blends with a sort of millenarianism that we see in the 60s movements some of the cultural movements that come out of the new left, I would in fact say most of them are like basically deeply morally nihilistic um, or at least apocalyptic. Um, some of that has to do with the pressures of the Cold War, understandable fears that if nuclear weapons were dropped, there would be serious consequences. The Cuban Missile Crisis doesn't help that. Um, when we look at the energy crises, that really freaks people out. So we're about to have another round of that this winter. But I think people also need to really pay attention to how demoralizing the 60s and 70s were for Americans to watch political leaders get assassinated, to go through energy crises, as I've said, the catastrophe of the Vietnam War. Uh, and the crisis of legitimation for the state, um, how the civil rights movement upended the American view of itself, ultimately, I think, uh, for the better, obviously. Um, but those are still major shocks to how we think of us, uh, think of ourselves. And I think it creates, uh, in the words of Carter, uh, a great malaise. And in steps in an environmental movement that wants to stop the malaise through degrowth. Um, sometimes this is a return to some sort of like degrowth virtue of consuming less, like, right? That's sort of like Jimmy Carter's take on it. Um, sometimes it's the Amory Levin's more wonkish, like we don't need hard generation. We need soft generation through wind and solar. Um, sometimes it's the uh, horrifically Malthusian view of Paul Ehrlich. Uh, sometimes it is the empty headed uh, things make me feel bad and I'm 
famous enough to talk about it, Jane Fonda way, um, you know, and sometimes it is the, I am a rich kid unaccountable to anybody. And I read Marcuse in college and now I'm going to blow things up once a week thing that comes out of the new left. Right. All these things sort of braid together. Right. And a lot of the anti-war people matriculate into the environmental movement. And I think that's where a lot of the anti-nuclearism comes. And there's a deep Mm -hmm. fear of big establishment things, big utilities, like big government. All of that really comes out of this movement. And look, some of these things are just not wrong about, you know. I get why coming out of the Vietnam War, you would be really distrustful of industrial society because industrial society in America is, as Eisenhower said, basically a military industrial complex, right? Like I'm an anti-interventionist, I should say, by the way. Like America is way too involved, often violently, in the affairs of other countries. But our industrial policy, how we were going to build things – our alternative to having a social democracy was to basically create a permanent jobs program through building out the military and like just vaporizing tons of poor people in Cambodia and Vietnam and elsewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, just to give them their due, right. Like I don't just want to dunk on them and say that they had nothing thoughtful in mind or that they were evil people. Uh, That's rarely how that actually goes. But I do want to say uh, it, was very uh, convenient uh, for to become a left movement the moment the left was breaking away from the working class, which was very patriotic and anti-communist and was watching itself get crushed through the downfall of the labor movement, sometimes through its own corruption, but often through um, the offshoring revolution that – basically made us dependent on China for basic goods. Right. Right. No, I mean, one other characteristic of, uh, you know, one other tenant um, or, or stream of, of that environmental expression was, uh, you know, I think the Sierra club was um, one of the dominant anti-immigration uh, groups as well. I mean, that, that, you know, in terms of degrowth, a lot of it was, you know, we don't want to grow the population. We don't want California to become crowded. We don't want these scenic places to be overrun with poor people. We don't want them to have energy in order to to live lives or, or for there to be enough energy for these people to actually, you know, come here and be supported. Um, I, I do want to, you know, I've been, I've been struggling with language a little bit because I think, you know, I don't want to la- label people in a pejorative sense, but I think it's really important that we do understand and have some nuance in the language we use. I mean, they say Inuit people have hundreds of words to describe the snow. Um, you know, English people or people who speak English have hundreds of ways to describe various states of being high or intoxicated. Um, but, you know, in terms of understanding environmentalism and, and being nuanced about it, um, you know, I've, I've sort of been referring to the tenets of environmentalism that I most oppose as, as being eco-romantic because their mm-hmm. primary concerns are not indeed environmental or, or social. But I think it is important. I mean, uh, so, so another term I'm trying to come by in terms of the environmentalism that I perhaps respect is maybe the Clean Air and Water Act environmentalists, you know, the, the ozone layer environmentalists that, you know, were for innovation and novel refrigerant that basically solved our ozone layer problem. Um, pro-nuclear environmentalists like like Ansel Adams, um, I'm going to read a couple quotes here, right, but who said that nuclear energy is the only practical alternative that we have to destroying the environment with oil, oil and coal or mm-hmm. The wonderful William Siri, um, which I was just sharing an article on Twitter that that uh, you liked. That's the kind of the history of Diablo Canyon and how the Sierra Club, you know, blew mm-hmm. up and Friends of the Earth formed. But you know, this amazing president of the Sierra Club from 1964 to 1966, uh, a biophysicist who studied radiation, nuclear radiation at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, and created this kind of historic compromise to get Diablo Canyon built and preserve this scenic area, Nobimo Dunes, I think it's called. But um, you know, this, this one quote that I was just uh, came across that I really loved um, was that, you know, when this, this, the uh, Sierra Club was kind of working through this schism within itself about what to do with Diablo Canyon and uh, an anti-nuclear um, uh, activist within Sierra Club wanted to share some sort of pseudoscientific scaremongering about contamination from reactors. Uh, William Siri said, you can never be persuaded that your anti-nuclear crusade is meaningless, but you should at least know that for every page of inaccurate and distorted material from non-experts, I can produce a thousand pages by competent authorities that refute it or place it in an unprejudiced context. You know, so there is 
there's something at the heart of environmentalism. There's all these flaws, as you mentioned, sort of the Malthusian, the anti-immigrant, et cetera. Um, I'm not trying to say that Ansel and, and William Siri were impe- of impeccable moral or, character. I mean, it was, let's give him some credit. James Lovelock, obviously. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so an exception. I do, I, yeah. 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 So, I, you know, I'm talking about, you know, what I was saying with you in the sort of uh, pre-recording was this idea of like, you know, I don't want to throw that baby out with the bathwater, but I, I feel like those um, th- that expression of environmentalism is kind of like the left. It's, it's something happened in the 60s and we we don't really see those expressions anymore. Maybe the 70s when the Clean Air and Water Act were passed. I mean, those were those Didn't were Nixon good expressions of the you know Nixon? what? He was the environmental president, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. He also wanted to build out a thousand nuclear reactors. Um, Indeed. Indeed. So uh, Project Independence was pretty harebrained, but uh, that part of it was cool. So, yeah, I mean, look. I say in the piece that I understand that there are different types of environmentalism. And because I'm on the left, I recognize this type of like almost scholasticism of like who's communism, which Marxism, you know, uh, that type of thing. And I do think there are meaningful distinctions to be had there. Um, I mean, obviously I just assented to it. Uh, But I think we should take a look at like what the movement means right now and whether or not people feel like they can actually make an honest case to the Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, the NRDC, maybe even Sunrise Movement, you know, all of these, uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute, right? Like we could Mm -hmm. just keep going, you know, uh, just getting hundreds of millions of dollars from Bezos and other people. Like, yeah. do, like, do you think that this is a debate that you're having with them? Or do you think that they are engaged in elite sponsored, motivated sophistry? Mm. I think I've seen enough evidence to decide that it's the latter. Now, there are people who have different perspectives within the environmental movement. They happen to be often pro-nuclear, um, eco-modernists, whatever. But I think, as I say in the piece, that those friends of mine would also have to confi- concede that they are indeed in a minority and basically behind enemy lines, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I thought, well, there are a lot of reasons that I like nuclear that have nothing to do with the environment. And they seem to speak to like people's everyday concerns in a way that climate change uh, doesn't really feel that way. Right? Like the energy transition is going to take a long time. You can keep mm-hmm. scaring the shit out of people about climate change. And I believe in climate change and I think problems will come. But should the focus be on scaring people about that and using that as an end run around debate? Or should it be about trying to appeal to people's basic dignity and needs? Like your kids should have clean air to breathe because they're human beings. And that should be the way that is. Or like you shouldn't have to have a college degree to be able to support an entire family on one income. Right. Mm -hmm. Nuclear provides that. Right. You should have a wealthy community based around something that produces something for for society, not a weird world of uh, fictive capital shell games that collapse and destroy people's lives. Right. Like these are all things that I could point to is why I like nuclear. And in fact, they are the things I think of first when I think of nuclear stuff like cheap electricity. If your electricity isn't cheap, you don't have a modern democracy. And you likely don't have a democracy at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Robert Bryce has done an excellent job of, of profiling that around Absolutely. The world. Just had a great interview with him. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. No, I mean, in terms of this kind of um, modern environmentalist um, nihilist death cult um, that we, we sort of are exposed to and what youth are exposed to, I mean, you're going to have to forgive me, gentle listeners, because this is an idea that I'm sort of working with and it we'll probably talk about on, on a few episodes. But you know, I've, I've been giving this a lot of thought recently, and I think there is um, a way to be climate concerned or even climate alarmed, but to channel that in a positive direction. Because what I see from, you know, the Fridays for Future marches that I attend and, and the kind of global youth movement in that regard, it's very reminiscent of a, a sort of tune in, drop out sort of thing. You know, they're they're striking from school. They're, they're missing their classes. I've got no problem with that. But there's a real urgency um, to training up the next generation. Um, of problem solvers, right? You know, in whatever domain that's within, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty focused on STEM because I think we've got some problems that are very amenable to science, technology, and engineering. Um, and, and I, I was talking with Ted Nordos, uh, just the other day about, um, the kind of metaphors we use to understand the challenges of climate change. Um, 
And we were reflecting on the fact that, um, you know, the green left, I had Seth Klein on a little while ago to talk about his book, The Good War, um, you know, really hold up World War II as, as an example. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a time, you know, of a, of a lot of rationing. And you'll find that, you know, Seth really and subsequent conversations that I had with him just like he was like people in Canada love rationing we, we felt like we were contributing to a bigger mission like it actually pulled quite popularly and what what Ted said that I thought was really interesting was um you know the better model may well be um responses to the Cold War and this is along the lines of what I've been thinking like I, I this is based on some pretty spotty historical knowledge but you know there was a time with sort of Sputnik anxiety and losing the space race, you know, that our response was sending a man to the moon was like unprecedented levels of, of uh, investment in education in elementary and high schools, rocket clubs, that kind of thing. Like that's what I would love. Like the culture shift I would love to see is saying you're concerned about climate. We got to fucking solve it. We need to innovate. Like here's these amazing educational programs. Like here's a national campaign, you know, to to bring these this kind of knowledge and, and get you guys excited. Because ultimately, the the cure to anxiety, which so many youth are struggling with right now, and climate anxiety, is empowerment and a sense that you can do something about it. But you need the tools. So strike on Friday, study on Saturday. It's kind of like my memo. But I'm I'm trying to like I think in a similar way you're trying to shift culture and and that well, that's yeah. kind of become my my little uh, my little you know, obsession for the moment is, is how do we shift youth, youth culture in that way? And, you know, I want to make my humble contribution to that, my little raindrop in the flood. Right. So obviously everybody here, like listeners are, I assume, I'm sure you have some hate listeners, um, is pro-nuclear, right? And we want some of these STEM people, not just involved in nuclear, but other things. Okay. Important to think about. So some other questions that we would want to add to that is where are they going to work? Are the things we want built things that are built here? Because if they're not, then there's no point in educating these people to do those things. Yeah. Right? Like, so we should ask ourselves some really hard questions about our manufacturing capacity. Now, we should do that. Now, maybe we shouldn't do every single thing in North America, right? It's probably just not advantageous, right? Maybe the heavy forging should stay in France for reactors or what have you. Like they're fine. They're an ally. Shit. We could stand to repair that relationship a little bit. Um, right. But that's sort of what I mean when I talk about like a vision of this beyond just climate is that when we limit it to climate, we tend to think about um, culture and education and not about like uh, politics and manufacturing. Right. In a very like hard nosed way. Where it's just like, where are those people going to work? Because I agree with you. I think that's awesome. I would love for there to be like this STEM push. I mean, Adrian and I, in our nuclear New Deal piece, wrote about how we need that. So I am for that. But we also have to basically uh, reshore some stuff, build up our manufacturing so they have a place to go, and come up with some state entities that are actually responsibly and accountably run that can deliver on that. On top of that, there has to be a cultural devaluation of white-collar work, which is overinflated right now, to the detriment of respecting working people all over America. Yeah. I think it's, frankly, like, if I'm just going to be blunt, it's fucking disgusting. The amount of people with make work jobs that write for fucking Vox or whatever and like to shit on people that have a hard scrabble life and try to get by day to day wherever they live in cities or flyover country. Like it, mm-hmm. I can't, I cannot stand it. I, these vacationers and intellectual life acting like they ought to run the world. Well, and I think this, this is going to segue very nicely into chapter four, wherever we are in this podcast, but, um, you know, the, um, the, the frank and stark conflict that we're seeing uh, developing between environmentalism and labor. You know, there's a wedge that's already there. And I really think that we need to be the hammer that, that continues to, to, to split that wedge between environmentalism and labor. I'm not sure how strong they ever, how strongly linked they ever were, quite frankly. Um, there's historical archive uh, photos of uh, environmentalists scrapping with uh, tradespeople over the construction of Indian Point. And then, you know, in Illinois, we see a similar struggle between labor and, and genteel environmentalists mm-hmm. over the threatened closure of Byron and Dresden. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts around that? How, how, how do we engage in that, in that battle? Yeah, we're going to see. I'm very interested to see what happens with the Save Diablo um, movement, because I think a lot of unions are going to get involved with that. And that's really exciting. Um, I think it's a deal to be brokered, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that there's a lot to say there, at least for defending the nuclear fleet. Uh, how we would parlay that into expanding the nuclear fleet is a different uh, question. So, I mean, I think you and Ted probably talked about this, that like uh, unions are in it for better working conditions and better pay for their workers, and that's what they should be. Um, there isn't always a broader political vision. So getting that together is going to be an interesting thing to do. But like right now in America, we have what's called being called the great resignation. We're like over 4 million people have just like basically Johnny paychecked out of their jobs. Like you can take this job and shove it. Um, right. And we have a, an incipient strike wave happening right now. Right. So maybe this is a return to the um, labor movement. I think what's important is that there really just aren't a lot of people from the left that are like prime movers are involved in either yeah. of those two things. Right. So that yeah. should tell us something about the current state of the left. Right. 100%, um, yeah. And yeah, I think to me, like this is all industry and manufacturing. When I look at what we need to do to solve climate change, it's all big industrial projects. So getting labor on board is like, political buy-in number one, right? Yeah. Or at least within yeah. the top three, right? Because yeah. you need to go in with a co coalition of people that can actually crack the whip on things and get things done. Well, and, you know, locally, like within within the Canadian context, um, the vision for um, our nuclear future is it's the managerial class um, of the power plants, the utilities, the nuclear associations. Labor is essentially silenced. You know, labor in Canada, mm -hmm. the labor unions are saying, no, we need to build more large candy reactors. That's beautiful to hear. If we're serious about decarbonization, you know, a, a recent report from the Power Workers Union up here in Canada on, um, you know, plans to electrify everything, electrify transport, we need to 3x our current generation you know and we have the tools to do that in the form of these larger reactors they're politically unpopular but they're not going to become popular if, if there's no champion of them and from what i've seen um in, in my my work in this sector um labor has been pretty downtrodden in this and been fairly voiceless in it and in terms of my you know work um with canadians for nuclear energy that's been just my absolute focus is engaging with these unions creating messaging that they're a little uncomfortable with now but are currently starting to share right and so we you know we have our struggle to save a, a local nuclear plant um that's the, the pickering nuclear generating station and you know labor is behind that they're a little hedgy about coming out for it or, or spending any um, either, you know, bargaining capital or effort totally. because they they view it as a lost cause. Um, but, um, you know, there is uh, by these outside ally voices coming through, um, you, you can see their resolve firming. And, and, you know, again, just starting to see some of the uh, the, the pro pickering tweets getting picked up and retweeted by some of the unions is, is very interesting. And it is sending some tremors into the uh, the managerial class of the nuclear establishment. Yeah. I mean, one of the favorite things that happens is like I'll publish something or I'll appear on a podcast and someone from a union or from the trades or an electrical engineer will be like, thank you for writing that or saying that. Yes. Yeah. You know, and like, those are the people I want praise from, right? That's the praise I care about most. Yeah. You know, you don't just write or think for kudos, but it is important to know that the people who are in the field and know stuff respect what you are doing and that you're representing the realities of their world correct as correctly as you possibly can to the world around you. So like what you've said about what's going on with labor in Canada and nuclear is so exciting. To me, and I, I mean, I just I love that, right? Like, I mean, it sounds so silly. Like when you start uh, realizing how right, it's simple, but it's hard. I loved when you had Alex Strambath on. I respect Alex a lot, and I really liked that episode. Um, and he said, uh, "That's a um, that's a hard, not an easy problem." Right. Yeah. And he would say that to things that were simple, right? Because the assumption is that if something simple, it's going to be easy. Uh, right. But like what we're talking about is actually like really hard. That's a hard, not an easy problem to quote Alex about this. And it is again, all industrial. Mm -hmm. There is no non-industrial solution to climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like if we're, if we're talking agriculture, if we're talking energy, if we're talking electricity, if we're talking 
infrastructural protections like dams or seawalls or whatever. It is all industry. Right. I mean, and the, the eco-romantic, nostalgic uh, return to Eden, it, it starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of doom, of simultaneous you know, global breadbasket failures. If we fail to innovate, um, if we stop technological progress in the face of larger and larger problems that require larger and larger and more ambitious solutions, then yeah, maybe maybe these uh, catastrophic predictions come true or come true sooner, or the death toll is higher. Um, so this is where, you know, what the environmental movement has become and what it's fighting for becomes just profoundly, not just anti-social, but anti-environmental at the same time. Um, you know, in, t- in terms of labor, um, you, you talked before, I thought this was really brilliant on, on Robert Bryce's podcast about um, the patronage relationships between renewables of the Democrats, natural gas and the Republicans and mm-hmm. natural gas and renewables. I just thought that was an amazing way to think about it and why we're making some of the insane fatal trifecta grid choices that we are not just yeah. in the U.S., but but around the world um, and sort of seeking that patronage relationship, like, you know, in, in terms of the rail politique of energy, um, ultimately more nuclear is not going to get built because there's a fringe of pro-nuclear advocates with their fists in the air. Right. I mean, we're, we're important. I think we're, we're generating a new discourse. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's an essential piece of the puzzle, but ultimately nuclear is going to get built because of the energy crisis in in Europe. Right. right? Yeah. Gas prices are up four or five times. Yeah. It's not because it's not because we have like fucking great takes on Twitter, man. Like that's not going to be like, we're not that important. Thank God too, by the way, if I were that important, I don't think I could handle it. And I don't think the world would be better off. Right. But uh, like a, a battleground in terms of that patronage, I think we're talking about labor as I, I don't know if patronage is the right term, but forming relationships of allyship and strength. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, labor really seems to be a key point there. And there is a battle for labor um, and the environmentalists you know, are pitching uh, a green transition and, and sort of pretending that there's going to be, you know, a green industrial revolution building, you know, wind turbine, really not the nacelles because, uh, you know, Germany will be doing that or, you know, but that we could build the towers or something and roll some steel or, you know, like a lot of the aesthetic of the green left builds off of, again, World War II mass production of renewables, essentially, that, right? Okay, so here, can and, I just add, like, say something real quick about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So Maddie Serwinski and I looked into the Biden solar futures plan, which comes out from NREL and like these basically like government institutions, right? National um, Renewable Energy Laboratory. Yeah, yep. NREL. Yep. Okay. And the study was spearheaded by a woman who worked for a solar startup that then got bought by the Saudis. But that aside, um, one of the things that they basically admit is like, yeah, China makes all of this anymore. And there's probably no way we're ever going to build solar domestically. Like right. that just won't happen. Right. There's no reason to do that. Yeah. I was like, great. And, and, okay. And, build back better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, there was a great article as well shared by a, a labor MP from Scotland, which was, uh, you know, just exposing the fact that, you know, for their offshore wind build, um, there'd been promise of jobs. They set up a, a, a facility again, just for rolling out the towers, nothing complex. Mm-hmm. And within a few years, it got offshore to, to Vietnam and, you know, the factory closed, you know, it's, yep. these jobs are, are illusory. And then also, I mean, I love that parking lot metaphor that, uh, uh, one of the union heads, Bob Walker, gave me around, you know, how large is the parking lot outside of a solar facility or a wind facility? Yeah. Now, there are no parking lots. What about a gas facility? You know, 30, 30, 30 parking spots for a massive gas plant, like a 600 mm-hmm. megawatt gas plant. A can-do reactor, um, you know, a can-do site. We've got, a, you know, a site with 2,000 parking spots in Pickering, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and 7,600 full-time equivalent jobs are on the line when that plant closes, 3,000 of them directly at the plant, right? And when our General Motors um, automotive plant shut down in Oshawa, there was political uproar. You know, the premier was, you know, you know, throwing out plans to sort of keep the plant going and it's just crickets in the face of, of Pickering closing. And I think, you know, in Canada here, we have 76,000 people working within the nuclear supply chain, heavy union density. Mm. Um, for me, this is, this is such a, such an opportunity and we need to win that battle of ideas, um, as pro-nuclear advocates sh- demonstrating that the, the, the just transition is already here. It's, you know, unionized, you know, intergenerational jobs, um, that, that nuclear provides. Um, and that, you know, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I'm right there with you. Like, look, when I take a look at everything that's happening right now, I am actually filled with hope. It's going to be a dark winter, man. It's going to hit like Lebanon. It's already just, it's heartbreaking oh, to man. see what's happening there. Grids uh, down, right? Total, yeah, total blackout for days now, right? India is probably going to be there soon too. And that's just 
uh, crushing um, mm-hmm. to to take a look at. And it's going to be a hard winter in Europe and in America. Uh, I think people's heating bills are projected to go up something like fifty four percent this year. And and you know? like, what is the response to that? Right. I mean, this is um, Roger Pilkey's Iron Law, right? Or or you know, I think Paris's quote. You know, you cut down the last tree to to heat your child, keep your child from freezing at night. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the, the kind of, uh, Ted wrote about this as well, sort of the anti-nuclear chickens coming home to roost, you know, or, or, or who, who else said this, you know, th- this is your energy transition. Did you say that? You know, no, here it is. I, I think a bunch of people have been saying it. Yeah. I think yeah. I love the way Mark Nelson put it. He said, people thought they were doing decarbonization, but then the truth was revealed that they were in fact doing degrowth. And yeah. that's what this looks like. So yeah. look, I mean, it's America, man. We love fracking. We love fracking. Oh, we love it so much. We're going to do so much more natural gas in a response to this because that's where our path dependency is. We have an opportunity to argue for nuclear. Uh, we'd have to really change some of the regulation and laws here, I think, to get this done. I'm becoming more and more convinced. But what's interesting is we seem to be willing to build out nuclear in other countries, but not in America. I don't know why our elites yeah. think Americans don't deserve that, but I guess that's what they believe. Um, because in Ukraine, we're going to build more AP-1000s, which is great, by the way. I love that we're doing that. Um, I just wish we were doing some of that here. And it's one of those things where it's like the imperial center gets hollowed out to uh, mm. feed parts of its um, projects abroad, you know? Perfect, yeah. uh, but I mean, here's, here's my concern, right? Is, is finally, you know, we're at a moment, you know, perhaps fracking was part of what killed the nuclear renaissance in the early 2000s. I'm sure, you know, a large part of it was Fukushima didn't help the cause and the incompetence of, you know, um, Western nuclear builders and companies, you know, maybe it was the nail in that coffin, right? Mm-hmm. We're on the verge with this energy crisis. I mean, nuclear does well when fossil fuels are in crisis. Renewables do well when fossil fuels are cheap and plentiful. I think that should give everybody pause. Yeah. But yeah. we're we're at a moment we're at a moment where you know the we're in net, we're an energy crunch, and all of a sudden, you know, in, in Britain they're talking about you know uh, uh, building more EPRs, building uh, Rolls Royce uh, nuclear, et cetera. Um, I think what I'm really concerned about is um, this is a this is an incredible moment, and the nuclear industry is going to fuck it up. Um, I think there's a, a very high chance of that, and so I wanted to bounce this off you. I think it's just common sense, you know, that the, the industry should look at you know the errors of Vogel, of Somer, of of so many other places, and really focus not on a fancy new design or a new scale. Um, I didn't mean that as a pun on the company, but you know. Uh, SMRs, for instance, and not like if, if I were running this whole thing, what I would say is who's doing it on budget and on time? What are they building? What just happened in UAE, for instance? Okay, like we need to assemble an international dream team. Like if we want to build in America on budget and on time, we need to be humble. We need to do what the Koreans did, which was they looked around or what the French did. And they looked around and said, who's the best thing? Who's the best at building these things? What technology mm-hmm. are they building? Who can we bring in as consultants to guide us through this? Who can we bring in as a crane operator to not fuck up? you know, loading in the reactor vessel um, like that. That to me, that seems like what's what's really needed to seize the moment and take advantage of this opportunity, because I'm super concerned that we're going to fuck this up. You know, that. We're yeah, I think it depends on where you live, honestly, like yeah. the, um, I'm, I'm saying in the West, in the UK and France, you know, Macron has, has come out again. We need to reinvent nuclear. It's, it's exciting. He's actually saying it. He's coming out, but it's limited, I think, to building six uh, SMRs and yeah, a, re- right, a reinvention, yeah. right? As if as if the old stuff didn't work. I mean, they're burned by Flamanville, right? That's like a what a EPR that's in its 14th year and mm-hmm. four times over budget. Like there's there's reason for this. But to me, it's like, OK, we'll find the people like just the evidence, man. Like just where did it work? What worked? Learn from that, you know, not, not reinventing the wheel every 10 years, every time there's a cycle where fossil fuels get expensive and we have an opportunity again. That that's, that's my worry. Anyway, it's a bit of a diatribe, but no, no, no. And, 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 and the unions, and I will say the unions see this, right. And I, that's why the Canadian unions are pro can do like they're the yeah, people right. who are making sense. They are the people who are making sense both on the scale of decarbonization, electrification that's required, what reactors match that. Yeah. If it ain't broke, don't jobs. fix it. You yeah. know, like that's, yeah. it's, it's that simple. So the question is like, again, that might depend on where you live and what your government's capable of doing. Um, in the U S we're not in good shape. We basically don't have a nuclear industry. We have an energy industry that has nuclear assets. 
Mm-hmm. It's also very profitable to decommission a nuclear plant. Right. So a lot of these utilities, they don't even want to defend a plant that gets closed. That happens. It's sad, but it's the case. So that puts us in a really weird position, right? Because the other thing about like the Biden presidency um, is that they have a lot of nuclear hostile people and they have a lot of people in there whose legacy project uh, will be renewables build outs. That is how they have envisioned their future. The DOE secretary, Jennifer Granholm, is one such person, right? If you check out her book, co-authored with her husband, Dan Mulhern, in 2011, that is the latter half of that book. Uh, And it details how uh, she built out the wind industry in Michigan, right? Uh, Because Michigan only sees itself in terms of what it lost or had with the automotive industry. Um, And that that's the vision for America. All of those businesses went belly up, by the way, none of them survived uh, probably for the reasons that the Scottish guy was talking about. Okay. So that means we're in really like hostile territory for all of this. And we're going to have to start looking at who wants what right like there are the people we think we want or should work with us and then there are the people who might actually work with us Uh, that's one of the reasons why i talk to the right a lot is because a lot of them are hungry for a manufacturing plan for america stuff like this i'm not saying they're the only people to talk to by the way i'm just going to walk through like a potential vision for what this might look like it is clear that um cole's days are numbered in america I think we still burn some of the most coal in the world, but um, the plants are dying. Now, the left is going to say, once we pass the PRO Act, that's fine because those unions can get destroyed, but we'll have an easier time organizing them on the back end when they all get renewables jobs. Well, and, right? and those jobs will not have, what was it in Illinois again? They were They were mandating a kind of... Uh, basement wage that would be required for these projects right, and the environmentalists right, right. fought that on an on racial justice lines i believe right yes oh always yeah that that was prohibitive to um uh poc business owners um yeah. right uh to say nothing of uh perhaps how that might hurt the poc working class but you know right, we can get into right. that later um yeah. Uh, anyway, where, where was I going with this? Right. So we want to take a look at coal country, right? Now, there are certain states in America where you're not allowed to build nuclear. We should probably change that. Because if we, like West Virginia is one of them. Really? Right? They have a nuclear yeah. ban? No, they don't have a nuclear plan. Yeah, they, okay. they have okay. a nuclear ban. Yeah. not. I thought you wow. said plan. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and I was like, uh, I wish. Um, and they're like 90% coal. Is that probably like pushed by the coal industry? Oh, I'm sure. That ban? Right. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to have to figure out how to create some sort of desire there for that to happen because one way would say the lesser of two evils to them. We could say like, look, we'll build you some nuclear plants and you get to own them or whatever. And that'll expand your workforce and keep these jobs together. So the community will like it. It keeps your reliability. Right. Um, And it's not going to add unreliability to Mm -hmm. your grid. Because if right now we did like the borderline psychopathic Biden admin plan for building out a ton of renewables, that would destroy all of those coal plants, which are built into their rate base, which means people are paying for them. And then it would add another layer of unreliability into their mix for all of the green energy, quote unquote green, all of the unreliables, wind and solar, they would have to build on top of that. So they'd be paying for plants that don't produce anymore, experiencing massive job loss, paying for new unreliable energy. And then as everybody knows now, anybody who's paying attention knows this, that unreliable means unaffordable. Mm -hmm. We have to create a different type of vision there. And we have to work with those communities and we have to work with people who might not even share some of our other values to get that done, right? I'm thinking state by state in America, right? In brokering deals with big business and the federal government, because that is the only way I can really see this going forward at this point. That might be a pipe dream, by the way. I'm Mm -hmm. spitballing here just like you. But this is how I've been thinking of these things, right? Like we need to look at who stands to benefit the most. And by the way, 
where these like red states are that have all this coal or whatever, you'll have to fight with fossil fuels, but you won't have to fight fossil fuel and environment uh, environmentalists because environmentalists right. don't care about poor people that live in working class people that live in flyover country. They think they're subhuman. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I got I got to tell you a quick story, Emmett. Um, and it's about the importance of energy. Um, and in this circumstance, the importance of coal, um, which is not a story I thought I'd be telling. Um, but I, I took my son to a museum um, in what's called Steeltown, Hamilton. Uh, it's a big mm-hmm. industrial town on Lake Ontario. And uh, I kind of forgot, but my triple great grandfather, my son's quadruple great grandfather was uh, a pretty renowned engineer in Canada. Um, and Hamilton suffered from a cholera outbreak uh, in, in 1854, which killed uh, one in 40 people. Um, probably more people got sick and almost died. So it's just an, an unimaginable death toll, right? Um, and that led them to the, the understanding they needed to come up with a safe water supply. Um, and so my quadruple or sorry, triple great grandfather ended up actually designing a pump house for them, coal fired. Um, that brought water from a clean part of the lake, pumped it up onto this escarpment to a reservoir and solved the cholera problem. Um, and they got that done in two years time, like imported wow. high quality pipes from Scotland. I mean, this was, this was That's a time amazing. when you, all of your gears and parts were carved out of wood, you know, as a mold, you poured iron in, like just, it's insane thinking about the engineering and the manufacturing here. And it was just, it, it brought it was yet another lesson that idea that you'll burn the last stick of wood to keep your child alive. Right. Um, and they sort of, trade-offs of fossil fuels are of just plentiful energy right and the fact that yes hamilton suffered a lot from air pollution right burned a lot of coal for steel burned some coal for for, for clean water but on balance far more lives were saved by burning that coal and getting clean water in hamilton than from the air pollution it's just it was interesting to think of and then you know reflecting on it now you know the current pumps are powered by electricity which is largely nuclear and hydro in in ontario and so there's no trade-off anymore. You get your there clean water, you get your clean air, right? Like We love it. We love it. I yeah. mean, look, like Alex Epstein is right. Nature and the world is supremely dangerous. Fossil fuels made the world more safe. Fossil fuels have come with consequences we don't like anymore. That's okay. You know, I was, I think it's like, uh, what's that? Um, Pernicular Aussie, Ben Hurd? What's his name? Yeah, or Oscar Archer, maybe. Or no, it was, it was Ben yeah. in, in yeah. Um, Robert Bryce's documentary. said, yeah. you get all the – most of the things you get out of hydrocarbons from nuclear without any of the side effects. Yeah. That's the vision. That's, yeah. that's what we're offering. I mean, look, man, the deck is stacked against us, right? Like this is going to take a long time long time. It is going to be a weird ass journey and things outside of our control are going to determine how most of it goes. Mm-hmm. Right. So anybody who's pro nuclear needs to be ready for that. And I think people should get really honest with themselves about what the energy transition is going to look like and how long it's really going to take, yeah. you know, because these like 10 year time windows or whatever, it just destroys credibility. Right. Okay. Yeah. So here's something I'm not going to get into a whole debate on like, ivermectin and like COVID or whatever. But I don't know if you saw that Joe Rogan clip where he's talking with that CNN doctor and he's like, your network lied about me taking horse dewormer. He was like, I was prescribed ivermectin Mm -hmm. by a doctor. I think Joe Rogan's also vaccinated. So he's like, and you guys, I said that on that episode and you guys lied about it over and over again. And you can find like a supercut of everybody saying Joe Rogan takes like horse dewormer. This is why no right. one is getting vaccinated anymore. And he says to the guy, do you understand that when you do this and people know that you're lying, that's why they don't trust you on literally anything else you say, that they mm-hmm. wonder what the hell is actually going on in Syria or Afghanistan or wherever else you're reporting on. Do you understand what this does to your credibility and why People listen to me more trustfully than they listen to you, right? Yeah. I'm paraphrasing there. And that is what the environmental movement is doing to itself, mm-hmm. right? Like that, I yeah, mean, take yeah, a look at COP, yeah. right? Um, you're mm-hmm. going to be out there harassing people in, um, next month, which I'm excited to see clips of. And the nuclear industry can't show up to that. Uh, but for some reason, like fucking Leonardo DiCaprio can. You know what I mean? Like this is all like top tier international elite stuff 
that will always be geared toward immiserating the lives of everyday people because that is how people think of it once they get to that top level. They aren't going to come up with the solution where they're like, you know what? I think we should do a major national manufacturing build out and build all of these things because they are predisposed not to think like that. It's not Mm -hmm. in their interest to do that immediately. They benefited from how all of this has panned out. And it's not a conspiracy like Gore Vidal says, because they don't need to conspire. They just are who they are and they all know each other, you know? So, so how long, how long till the bubble gets burst? Because, you know, the arguments are morally bankrupt. The hypocrisy is becoming more and more blatant. You know, it's important for folks like us to be pointing that out. You know, for example, the Indian point closure. Um, but you know, they have, I think the global budget for environmental NGOs is in, is in the billions, yeah. maybe not tens of billions or maybe 8 billion. I know NRDC has an operating budget yearly of, was it 200 million? I mean, that, that's going to delay the, um, you know, the inevitable, um, perception of, of, of these folks. What, like you're saying that the decay in their, uh, believability and their credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess, you know, to, to close, um, nuclear barbarians is, uh, taking a swipe, um, at those folks and, Tell me to just, I guess, in closing, give us, give us, you know, how people can get involved, but also a little bit more about, you know, how you're planning on engaging with, uh, with the environmental movement, these, these thought leaders, the celebrities, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I plan on being antagonistic. I mean, I think the environmental NGOs that are responsible for things like the closure of Indian point, um, we need to come up with the legal grounds to forcibly disincorporate them, whether that is infrastructural terrorism or not, I don't care. Uh, but, uh, breaking them is probably the only way that we succeed, Mm -hmm. right? Um, because the money's not going to start flowing some other way. So political means like that is probably more necessary than discursive means, but discursive means are helpful. And that's some of what I'm going to do. So yeah, you can find it at nuclearbarbarians.substack.com. I'm going to be writing some stuff as well as putting out a weekly podcast. So if you subscribe, you'll get it right to your inbox. And what I want to do is I want to create different ways of thinking about why we do what we do, why we develop, why it's important, um, why we have all this stuff that we need to take care of. What does taking care of it mean? What is civic duty? How do we imagine that in this current hypermediated world? You know, these are all of the things that I want to bind together with my pro-nuclear advocacy. And it seems like quite a task. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but if you want to watch me try, it's free. And then I got one last question for you. Um, are you going to grow a nuclear advocacy mustache? Uh, I actually, you know, I was thinking about it. The problem is, is that the only type of mustache I really look good in is a handlebar. And I Ooh. like, I look a little bit too much. Like people can't really see me, but I have like tattoos on like my hands and stuff. I look a little bit too much like an ex <laughs> when I do one of those, right? Like I, I understand that my job here isn't to be like respectable, <laughs> you know, and like uh, right. the sort of white collar NGO way, but um, I would like to not look totally beyond the pale. So no, I'm probably going to keep it uh, just a uh, little scruffy, you know? All right. All right. Emmett, man, thanks for making the time. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure having you on, uh, working on camera and off camera with you um, as an ally. Looking forward to uh, to more of this, man, and uh, catching future episodes. Yeah, I'm excited to get canceled for some of the things I said on air today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.